Welcome to the Unequally Yoked podcast. I'm Bambi Francisco Royzen, and I'm speaking with Clarice Schillinger from Back to School PA. Back to School PA's mission is to drive adv- advocacy and influence change in communities. Clarice, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bambi. I'm excited to uh, explain everything that we're doing in Pennsylvania. That's great. You know, tell us a bit about your background and this journey. Uh, to become known now as the back-to-school mom? Um, So I do have political background. It's something that, you know, I've always been interested in and turned it into a career. But what ended up happening when my kids were sent home, you know, with the COVID virus that that we all didn't know at that time back in March, um, that was fine. And, And we did what we had to do. But what ended up happening in August and September when the schools were still closed, we were about six, seven months into school closures, I started to join the school board meetings and saw that there was a lot of party line votes. And what I mean by that is one party wanted to keep the schools closed and one party wanted to keep them open. And that's when I saw COVID in the schools turning political. When that, when I saw that happen over a four or five month period is then when I started to take action and said, this is not about COVID or the numbers. This is more so about politics and political powers that be. Now, your Pennsylvania is a, is a pretty sort of battleground state. It voted for, it backed Donald Trump in 2016, but Biden won by a few percentage points. It, so it's, I, the, it sounds like the makeup of the state is, is pretty sort of 50-50. So would you say the makeup of the candidates who want schools open is a good mix of both Democrats and Republicans? Because you did say that you're, you, you jumped into this because you saw it used as a, as a political weapon and you saw demarcation between the parties, one party wanting schools open one party wanting schools closed. So is, is it a, is a good, is it a bipartisan effort to keep schools open or is there one party who wants to keep it open and one party who wants to keep it closed? So we have polled a lot of people around Pennsylvania and what we came to find out is the parents, the taxpayers bipartisanly, it's about an 80-20, 80% of people believe that children who need in-person learning to succeed should have that choice. So that is 100% bipartisan, um, diverse. You know, we have people in our groups of of everybody, right? Um, Parents, taxpayers, caregivers, grandparents. And and in these polls, we have seen 80-20. What our fear is, was the political powers that be, the party bosses, or um, you know, the par- the elected party bosses, they have they are the ones that we've seen turn this from COVID numbers, you know, let's keep the children safe to a more of a political statement. So it's really sort of they're they're not listening to their constituents. You're the one that's getting getting the voices heard because they're for some reason up there um, just um, 
making up their own rules and not even considering the science. Now, you, you said 86 candidates, you supported 86 candidates out of, um, you supported 91 candidates, right? And 86 of them were elected. Now, given the bipartisan support of the parents, was it pretty easy to get these candidates elected? Um, so when it's not a presidential election, there's not many people that come out to the polls to vote. So what ended up happening was a true grassroots effort, boots on the ground, letting people know these people, these members of your school board directly affect your life. We need you to come out to vote. I know the president's not running this year, but understand these people affect everything. And I know that we'll go into more detail with that BMB, but when I tell you they affect everything from taxes to curriculum, to your school ratings, to if your schools are open or closed, these school board members across the United States of America have a lot of power, more power than what people realize. That's, that's, that's great. And it's really good to educate people because I'm a voter. I do vote during presidential elections and, 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 uh, but I don't really often know who my school board, who the school board members are. I mean, when you look at them and you look at their bio, you look at what they stand for and you're like, okay, whatever, check the box, but you never really understand how much power they have. I think we're waking up to that with with organizations like yours, really making sure that people understand that the school, the school board has a lot of uh, power over uh, the decisions that are made at the schools. What happened to the five or five candidates who weren't elected that you supported? What happened there? Because it's always good to learn from some of the things that didn't work. Sure. So one of the main things was um, the lack of, of blood, sweat, tears, and elbow grease. So when you're running for a local seat, it is door knocking. It is walking from door to door and introducing yourself to the community. It's not like a presidential election or a U.S. Senate election where you see these people's names on the faces. When When you are running for a local seat, it takes an extraordinary amount of elbow grease to get it done. And, uh, you know, some, it's no fault of their own. Most of these people running are parents. Mm-hmm. They, you know, were running them, these kids to t-ball and soccer and, and just not really having the time to put into it, but they wanted to influence change, right? So with local elections, it just takes that, it's, it's exactly what you just said. I don't really know my school board members, who, who I'm voting for. That is what, with back to school PA, we're telling these candidates, you need to educate your community on who you are and what you stand for. So when they go into the poll, they know what to do. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about how you ended up supporting them, but also, but I want to ask that later because I want to I want to talk about how um, how other folks, other parents in other states, like I'm in California, how we can mobilize and also help uh, school board candidates. So, but let's talk about the status in Pennsylvania today. What's the status of the school closures for K to 12? So currently, right now, majority of the schools are open. But what I say is they're open 
and it's a lot, it looks a lot like smoke and mirrors. And I believe that that's around the United States. I've watched different states closely, like California as well. What I mean by smoke and mirrors is the building itself, the school building itself is open. But how many children do we all know who have been sent home because they were exposed to quarantine or, or to, um, they were put in quarantine because they were exposed to COVID. Now these same children have masks on, are socially distancing, and they're still being sent home for two weeks. So there's, and that happens to the teachers as well. There's a shortage on teachers. There's a shortage on bus drivers. Students are being quarantined. So yes, schools, the buildings are open, but I can't say that they are fully open, that children are receiving full-time education. We have so many schools that are shutting down because they don't have enough teachers to teach the kids. It's just the reality. Yeah, and it's probably tough, or maybe some of those schools also have the online portion. So if the kids are quarantined, they can still participate in that. So what is, what's the school board doing? What, what are, what's your organization doing to, to change this and get things back to normal? So I, I think that it takes, um, it takes November. So November 2nd in Pennsylvania is our final general election. That is when, um, when we started out, we had, you know, the 91 candidates. Now we have over 300 across the entire state of Pennsylvania. So November 3rd, I would love to talk to you and tell you, you know, how we made out, what our numbers were, how many people we got across that line to sit in school board seats. Um, I think, you know, these candidates, we interview them, we vet them, we, you know, do questionnaires, we have trainings and uh, on how to be a good candidate, what to do, what to do for your community, what your community is asking for you, from you. So um, I think that my hope is, is that these candidates, once they're in their seats, they will say, they will look and realize, geez, 33% of women have had to leave the workforce because of COVID, because their kids were sent home and they had no other choice but to stay home with their children. You know, uh, the school system feeds something like 38 million children a year. Let me come out of my comfort zone and look at these children who need school for food, for re heat, resources. And, and another thing is our teachers are our number one mandated reporters. So when our schools are closed, we see the numbers of child abuse reports drop by 30%, but child abuse increases by 60%. So the child abuse cases are not being reported because our teachers are not able to see them. So there's so many things that go in to school closures than just primarily the um, learning loss. Yeah, those are really, um... Wow, I didn't really, having considered some of those statistics, how much power does the school board have in keeping them open if the governor, if the governor, if your governor has a uh, issues a lockdown? 
So in the state of Pennsylvania, we were able to take away um, our governor's emergency lockdown powers since he was very excessive um, with the lockdown. But the school boards across America, and I, I encourage anyone listening to this really, is find your school code. Your school code, it, it, every state has one. That is their playbook. That's their rule book. That is what school boards go go off of in pennsylvania ours is 1028 pages long and every page of that has some type of power that's given to the school board like i mentioned before the taxes they have full control over taxes they have full control over curriculum they have full control over if our schools are open or not they have full control over you know, school rankings and, and standardized testing. This is important stuff that our tax money is paying. These are publicly funded entities. Our schools are publicly funded by us. So it's, it's important to know really almost, I don't want to say even more important, but nearly there to know who your school board members are and your, your township council members are than the president, because these are the people that are coming right to you, right to your door. Yeah, I, I would agree because they, you have, you're personally impacted, right? Uh, I'm not going to say what school my, my kids are going to, but there are no mandates and we're in California. So, but I'll just keep it at that because I'm very happy with our school board and also the county chief medical officer. Uh, I want to, you talked about, so you had some great statistics there about why kids should go to school. Largely, the, they, they do get their meals from school. A lot of them do. And, um, and I didn't know about the child abuse and, and how that goes down because the, the teachers can actually see the children. Um, but this is more from, you know, when I think about, when I think about why we should keep schools open, I think about what are the schools trying to achieve? And I have four things I consider to prevent unvaccinated adults from getting COVID. Well, I think there are adults who are running their own risk reward cal calculations. So out the door to prevent vaccinated adults from getting COVID. Well, if the vaccination works, they shouldn't be afraid. So out the door to prevent kids from getting COVID, the risk of dying are extremely low. And then this argument that Delta or future variants could be de deadlier, well, that's not scientific or would be all hiding under a rock. So what are some statistics sort of the, along those lines, COVID statistics, do the school boards use or you, your organization use to support school openings? So I think that we could all agree that uh, school boards or government officials kind of like they pick and choose their statistics of if it's what numbers they're using at that time, or maybe that, you know, school is shut down because the nursing home in their community, you know, their COVID rates went so high. So I think that that, what, what is the real issue here is when we're looking at numbers and, and you're listening to school board meetings, or you're listening to whoever's on the TV and they're talking about these numbers, we have to ask, you know, where have they come from? I mean, are these really children or are they, you know, you know, are they from nursing home outbreaks? Where prison outbreaks, where are they from? But UNICEF, um, non-political organization, you know, UNICEF, they put out an article that I just 
I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. And their opening line was, schools should be the very last to close and the very first to open. And they detailed, you know, really why that is because of the, um, you know, the child abuse and, and the, the providing of food and shelter. I have a mom um, from a city that called me and she's homeless and her and her daughter needed a hotspot so that her daughter could do school in the backseat of her car. So I think that, you know, while there's a million statistics out there, I think that these are the future leaders of America, right? That girl in the backseat of a car, just because she's homeless now, does not mean that she could not be our next president. And we need to make sure that she is properly educated and that we are giving her the education that she deserves and that, 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 that we've always given, you know, uh, one thing that I always bring up is polio. Polio was a child's disease. We never shut down schools. We've never done this. We should never even consider it again because these children have experienced an incredible amount of learning loss. I mean, Bambi, I'm not sure if you know, but for a year and a half, only 28% of the United States of America children were in the classroom for a year and a half, only 28%. Well, I didn't know that. And, and that's, you know, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because, and, and I look at these numbers almost daily. I think it's right now, it's about 460 children under 18 years old who've died. Now, every death is important, obviously, but statistically speaking, when you have 74 million kids, it's, it's pretty a small number. And did you know in Pennsylvania, I just looked this up, the number of deaths for kids, because they always talk about cases, the number of COVID deaths for kids under 14, zero. Zero. And kids under 18, it's uh, over eight. So out of a population of 2.7 million children in Pennsylvania, you have eight deaths. They're dying more of pneumonia and many other things, you know, just being outside. I think accidents are the third largest cause of, uh, of deaths for, for kids as well, because, you know, they're rambunctious and they, you know, my, my son skis for competitively. He's out there 90 days a year, you know, jumping off, you know, you know, he has a higher probability of getting seriously injured skiing than he does getting COVID. Now, Governor Wolf, your governor, he issued a mask mandate. Here's what he said. The science is clear. The Delta variant is highly transmissible and dangerous to the unvaccinated, many of whom are children too young to receive the vaccines. And so they need to require masks. This is a mask requirement. Now, I already said why I'm taking issue with this uh, science here. When he says we have to consider the science, I take issue with that considering only zero kids 14 and under have uh, died in Pennsylvania. I know your organization doesn't take a position on masks. I think that I have a number of studies that show that it is, you know, there's a lot of negative impact and there's a number of studies show that kids do are not the vectors of that transmission. And the masks can be very negative because they're breathing their own carbon, um, carbon dioxide. Uh, and so what are some of the arguments some of the school board members are making, maybe not your organization, but some of the school boards are making school board members, what are their arguments um, around um, mask mandates and vaccine mandates? Well, like you said, we do not take a position on masking, but what I will tell you 
the position that back to school PA has made is the, the statement that you just read from Governor Wolf, three weeks before that statement was made, can I read you this? He says, I think the school districts in Pennsylvania have to decide what they want to do. I think the CDC guidelines say strongly recommend that schools do that. They are, they are not mandating it, meaning the CDC, and neither am I. That was three weeks before he mandated the masks. And what he said in that, in that conference, um, the press conference, when he mandated masks, he said, not enough schools did what I wanted. Right. Only 60 out of 500 did what I wanted. And so what back to school PA, our position is, well, geez, we never had a choice. None of us had a choice. None of the school board directors had a choice, but what our fear is, and I think that a lot of people would agree with this, if he can change his mind in three weeks like he did, what does three weeks from now look like for our schools staying open or closed? And I think that that's the biggest fear here. And that's where the school board candidates who are running right now, they are saying, you know, it's coming. Like the mask mandate is just the stepping stone to closure. That's, that's really what it is. Um, so I think that they are, you know, they're going out in the communities and, and, you know, I would say we haven't pulled it, but I would say a majority of people say, can we just have parental choice? Can we just do what is best for our kids? And, you know, a lot of mom groups, they always say, I don't co-parent with the government. Um, let me make the choices for my child that are right. So that's kind of where, um, where we take a position where our candidates are, you know, they're trying to look at the community as a whole and say, I need to do what's right for the community. And if the majority of my community wants choice, then that's what I should stand for. Right. Because, you know, if you, we, you know, I told you that my county and school, uh, there are no mandates, but you still see people wearing masks if they're inside or if they're feeling kind of sick. And uh, so they do, they'll, they'll run the risk reward calculations and they'll determine whether they feel like they need to wear masks and nobody says anything, um, you know, and there's sometimes we see people wearing masks. Sometimes the same people aren't wearing masks. It just depends on the situation, but they do have that choice. Now your organization, um, you don't, endorse individual board members like I think you were doing at the start. Now you're providing uh, funding to po political action committees, PACs. I think you've given you, along with Paul Martino, who is, is funding your organization as well, you've given 10,000 to 30 of them, 30 of these really, that's that a lot. the last time we talked. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, well, you're up to like hundreds now. Where, where, what's the update here? So we are, we, we've handed out 50, $10,000 checks. So a half a million dollars across the state um, to political action committees. Uh, you know, this political action committee is kind of like a bank account, right? For the candidates. And so we support slates of candidates, which is like three or four candidates. So these, this slate of candidates receives $10,000 from us to help in their efforts with yard signs and, you know, mailers, door knockers, things like that. Um, and then we also give them training and resources and all kinds of stuff to try to get them across the line. 
And this is all for November 2nd, right? You're really putting that money to work for November 2nd. Yes. And, and yep. um, so, and how many candidates would that be? How many would you be supporting through these packs? It's a, it's around 300 candidates. Or 300 candidates. Okay. Um, okay. Is that going to be enough power from the school boards to really challenge what the state is doing? Yeah. So I, I think that it will, um, because what we see a lot that happens is like the copycat, right? So if the neighboring school stays open, then the neighboring school feels pressure to stay open. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, we've really looked at the state of Pennsylvania and spread the money out. Like it's not clustered. We've really spread it out so that we hope that in, with that tactic, that these schools that win, you know, these, uh, these candidates that win these seats will hold the other schools around them accountable. Like we're open, we're fine. You should stay open or their community members will keep that pressure on them. Okay. Well, with that much uh, momentum, it seems like you could have a larger mission. Is there a larger mission beyond keeping schools open or could there be? So I think that the real mission here is to balance the playing field. So the teachers union is one of the most powerful entities in the United States. Across every state, there, it's, it's unarguable that they are a very powerful entity. In the state of Pennsylvania, our teachers union gets $63 million a quarter from its members. So they are well-funded political machines. Now, there is a difference between teachers and teachers unions. Teachers unions are, you know, the, the, the big bosses at the top, they are political machines. The teachers, the members, they just need good benefits and good salary, right? That's why they're members of the union. But once you start climbing the ladder and seeing the political force that the, the teachers unions have across America, it's a little scary, right? So you mentioned Paul Martino, my funder for back to school PA. We look at this as more like leveling the playing field. The teachers union has always given money to candidates from school board to the president. We look at this like we need, you know, someone on the other side to say, well, if the teachers union isn't giving you money or endorsing you, we would love to do that and, and you know, have that accountability as, as the teachers union has built for many decades. So we're kind of like the antithesis to the teachers union. That's what we kind of like to, you know, say. So it's really, it's really evening out the scales. The anti-teachers union. Uh, <laughs> so one, you and I talked about this before, but this is something as well that is sort of creeping into the school. So I do want to touch and touch, uh, touch on it just briefly uh, to see whether there could be a stand uh, that your organization could make. And that's, a, that's around critical race theory. Um, it's packaged as teaching kids about slavery um, but it really isn't just teaching kids about slavery. We do teach kids about slavery in schools. 
but it's it's really teaching kids that America is systemically racist, right? That you know that that our founding principles need to be uh, turned upside down and and inside out. What are which What's your thoughts in terms of these school board members who oppose lockdowns, who probably oppose mandates? Are they also opposing critical race theory? Majority of people that believe schools should be open also feel that critical race theory does not belong in the classroom. That has come just from our interviews. I will say, the main reason for that is, is critical race theory, one of their foundations that they say is diversity and inclusion. When you close a school, you are not diverse and you are not inclusive because every single child has a different home, has a different learning, you know, you know, some children have IEPs and special needs and some people are gifted. You are not being diverse or inclusive when you are closing down schools in cities, in rural areas. It doesn't matter where you are that. So the foundation of critical race theory itself is null and void when we're still dealing with the fact that you want. So just imagine this, right? Like the economic divide that we are creating by keeping these schools closed is broadening and widening and deepen. And it is so bad now that how can we even begin to talk about diversity and inclusion when the, when the city of Pittsburgh, their public schools are still not open since 2020. Those city kids are still not in the school, in the class, why? Philadelphia, half of their schools aren't even open. So when we talk about critical race theory, like it really troubles me when we are not looking at truly, we, we, we're yelling diversity and inclusion, but I've got the homeless little girl sitting in the back of her car trying to log on to her, her school. That's the problem. Well, definitely their positions contradict each other all the time. Uh, these, these extreme positions are just untenable at scale. And so what are, what's the pushback when you talk about critical race theory in that context? I don't really get a lot of pushback. I mean, I don't think that people can really argue with the fact that that curriculum is so very important to our children. And when I bring up the fact that we have not been diverse and inclusive with keeping kids out of the classroom, there's really not an argument, right? Like it's very, it's, you can't really argue that. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, so I, maybe that's what we all need to be start arguing. <laughs> So let's talk about how what you're doing can be a roadmap for other folks, uh, particularly in California where I am. I know somebody who's on a school board. Uh, my children go to uh, private school. So, you know, as I've mentioned, I'm really happy with my school board. But there are a lot of, I know Paul said that his kids go to public school. He's going to, you know, keep fighting the fight there. And there are a lot of 
uh, parents here who are in public schools who probably would like to know how they can get more involved. How, what is your first, what are the first steps they should take? So the first step I took was um, filing Freedom of Information Acts. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of those, but when it's a public entity, schools, police station, township building, you know, the White House, you can file these Freedom of Information Acts to really see what's happening in your schools. Now, I have templates that I have shared across the United States with people to file these and say, you know, I want your emails that talk about critical race theory, diverse, equity, inclusion, whatever they want to call that. I want your emails and text messages about upcoming school closures. So what I did with those American um, Freedom of Information Act requests when I got them back, that like built my foundation with facts. I had facts that I knew were happening in the schools. Once I had that, I said, okay, my intuition that this has turned political was right because I have the emails, I have the facts, the text messages. So that's when I started the political action committee and said, you know what? We've got to start running school board members who will stand for our communities and stand for um, our children, our taxpayers. So, um, you know, a political action committee, we have, you know, we have formed a lot in Pennsylvania where they're only supporting three or four candidates. And that makes a difference, right? So I have how-tos on how to start political action committees. I've got templates on how to file American Freedom Act. Like I really have tried to start to make a playbook in a sense so that people can say, how do I do this? <laughs> and I just send it over. Um, so that's really, I mean, if, if people, if people are invested in making a change for our children, it can be done. It can. We have, I, I didn't even share with you, Bambi. Um, I forgot to tell you this. I think that I told you about our PA school code 520.1 said that um, schools by the, dis, by the choice of the school board, they could vote that schools could be closed up to four years. That's what our PA school code says. Right. So I went to Harrisburg about seven or eight times, our capital, and my bill went to the floor yesterday. It went to the House floor. It was passed in the House. Now it's headed to the Senate. So we can do this. We can make change. Is your bill to take that out, to take out that four-year closure? Yep. It'll be changed to 30 days within an academic year in case an emergency does happen. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Step. Now, you know what? I think you should change the name of your organization just back to School America and maybe have these little, you know, because it's such a now a magnet, right, to for other people who might want to know. You need to be able to, you know, uh, to host all of those documents and playbooks somewhere, right? And it would be great for, uh, for people to be able to email you or just, you know, maybe say, hey, I'm from California and, and start collecting these names and, and start helping to mobilize um, some of these folks. I really love what you're doing and I can see why Paul backed you and backed your organization. And uh, wow, congrats on just 
all the progress you've made, passing bills, supporting 300 candidates, really standing up for our kids. So I just want to say I really commend you. And, and I look forward to, I think, probably working with you somehow, figuring out how to get this and uh, your organization present in California. I would love that. Maybe that's our next steps. You asked, you asked me what the next step was. Maybe that's it. Maybe you just, you found it. You recruited me. Okay. I'm here. I'm the first mom. Okay. I love it. Thanks, Clarice. I've been speaking with Clarice Schillinger. She's the executive director and founder of Back to School PA. I'm Bambi Francisco Royzen.